Well, good morning, church. Good morning. So good to see you all. Um, thank you, choir, for singing that glorious uh, anthem. That, that, that anthem was actually written by two members of our congregation, uh, Bill and Nancy Payne, that are right here. Um, and you know, there is something, we're looking at the Psalms right now, um, and I think I mentioned to this to you a few weeks ago when we started this series, the Psalms are actually originally songs of the church. They were meant to be sung by the congregation. And there's something about music uh, that can move a word past the brain and into the heart. You can, you know, you can, you can say words, but when you hear a word on the radio, you can have it memorized within five minutes. There's something very powerful about what, when you take the word of God and you set it to music, it can drive the word of God past the intellect and into the visceral places of the soul. And this is why it's so good for us to not just read the word of God, but to hear it sung to us, like you just sung it to us. So as we go to God's word, let's, let's pray um, that God would drive his word into our hearts. Father, we thank you for the word of God that has been read and sung and spoken and witnessed to over millennia by your people, and that we are not doing anything here that is different or, or unusual that has not been done by your people for thousands of years. We are pausing to listen to the word of God so that we might believe the gospel and follow you as your disciple. So help us today to not just hear your word, but to, but to have open hearts and open minds so that we might not just hear, but respond with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at Psalm 77 today. So if you turn there in your Bible or open your bulletin to page 12, Psalm 77. This is God's word. It is absolutely true. It is given to each of you in love. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And I thought, well, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all of your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. 
Well, I've been away for a couple of weeks, and some of that time I spent in the Netherlands. You might, some of you know that I have been working on a PhD uh, for, I'm on a very, 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 very slow track. Um, <laughs> I've been working on it for about five years, and so I have found myself um, in the Netherlands a lot because I'm working at the Free University of Amsterdam. And, um, you know, the, the Dutch are fascinating people. It's this little beautiful country um, wedged right between Germany and France. Belgium is sort of in there too somewhere. Um, and, and, and one of the things that the Dutch are known for is their facility with languages. Because the Netherlands is so small and because so few people actually speak Dutch, um, they have to, even all of them at a young age, have to learn to speak many languages. In fact, just two weeks ago, I was having dinner with a Dutch family in the Netherlands and there was a, a young girl, she was 14, and already at 14, she was fluent in English, Dutch, German, French, and Latin and Greek. This is 14. And this, you know, this is quite common um, among the Dutch. Now, people who hail from our continent are not known uh, to have such <laughs> facility with languages. In fact, um, there's a joke that they like to tell, you know, someone with, who speaks three languages is called trilingual, someone who speaks two languages is bilingual, and someone who speaks one language is called American. They think that's very funny. Uh, they, laugh, they laugh at that. Um, so, you know, in an effort to kind of subvert this stereotype over the years as I've been going to and from the Netherlands, I've attempted to learn a little bit of Dutch. Now, I was surprised, you know, I know Spanish, I know a bit of German, I was surprised to find how difficult it is for me as a native English speaker to speak Dutch. I found that what looks like a, a quite straightforward word seems to have these, these invisible guttural noises and vowels that, that seem to be unseen to the native English speaker. So, for example, there's a word that it quite, looks quite simple. It looks like this, ach ten tach tig. But in reality, you pronounce it, ach ten tach Sort of like that. Is that right, Ellen? Are you, did I get that right? No, I did not get that right. <laughs> oh, Ellen, I'm so sorry. Um, we have a, a native Dutch speaker back there. So, so what I have found is that I am not just learning a language, but I'm actually learning to use all sorts of linguistic muscles that my mouth has, has never exercised before. I'm actually learning a, a, a different way to speak. We're doing this series in the Psalms this summer because we've been saying that we need to be taught how to pray. Like the disciples said to Jesus, teach us to pray. We don't know how. And the main teacher of prayer throughout the centuries of the church has been the book of Psalms. This is the prayer book of the church. But as we learn from the Psalms, we find often that we will discover words that do not just easily fit into our in existing language of prayer. In fact, at times, the Psalms almost confront us with a new language. Prayers that are so different, so unlike any prayer that you have ever prayed, that it's almost like you have to learn a new way of talking and speaking to God. Learn a new language of prayer. And one of those languages is the language of lament. Over one-third of the psalms are psalms of lament. Psalms of lament are prayed by people in trouble who are not finding easy answers for their pain. They are the words of men and women who are hurting, who are suffering, who are at times in agony, who are crying out to God, not getting any answers. I just recently saw that amazing Martin Scorsese film, Silence. And it is, it is like the, the priest, Father Rodriguez, in that film who... who in the midst of his suffering, crying out to God, and the only thing he is hearing is silence. These are the prayers of people like that, prayers of lament. As 21st century Americans, we are not really comfortable with these kinds of prayers. We are a nation of optimists, right? We believe in the pursuit of happiness. 
We believe in the ability to get things done. We have the power to find a solution for every problem. So if someone is in pain, someone's in struggling, find the answer. Send them to a therapist. Get them on medication, right? Find a solution to the problem. In fact, some people have suggested that part of the reason why we have become one of the most medicated and therapeutic societies in the world is because our cultural vocabulary does not leave any space for people to rage and cry and grieve. We have no space in our society for lament. Ancient societies were much wiser than our own. These prayers that we find in the Psalms are the ancient words of people in agony, people in pain, people who are willing to speak out that pain freely in the public assembly. And in a world like ours, friends, I think that we desperately need to recover the language of lament. Do you not think we do? Uh, In a world of global terror, daily violence, environmental disaster, social, political, cultural breakdown, racial and ethnic tension, pandemics of depression and anxiety, we need a language more than ever before to express our perplexity and our pain. And the Psalms, like me attempting to learn Dutch and learning to you know, exercise new muscles, we need to learn to exercise new muscles of the soul that can help us express our sorrow and our suffering. The Psalms school us to be fluent in the language of lament. So what I want to do is look at Psalm 77 and just look at two things that I think Psalms of Lament often do for us, offer to us today. First of all, they offer us freedom to express our confusion and pain. Freedom to express our confusion and pain. And secondly, what they do is they offer us faith to believe a bigger story. Faith to believe a bigger story. So first, let's look at that first, that they give us freedom to express our confusion and pain. Would you open and look at the psalm with me? Open your bulletin or the Bible. Look at, look at, let's just look at it together. You can see if, if you have a little, ins, a little preface inscription in the top, it says it's a psalm of Asaph. We don't know who Asaph was. Um, we do know that he's in trouble. He doesn't say what trouble he's in, thankfully, because if he specified it, then it would not so easily become a prayer that we could pray for ourselves. But he, all we know in verse 2, he says, in the day of my trouble. You see that? It's clearly a lot of trouble. He, has, he describes sleepless nights, verse 2. He actually says in verse 3 that thinking about God makes him feel worse. Have you ever been in a situation like that? It's like the silence of God actually makes him feel worse. He can't even talk about his sorrow, verse 4. When he thinks about the past, how good things used to be, it only deepens the pain. See that, verse 5 and 6. And then in verse 7, his sorrow seems to turn into frustration, and he begins to ask some questions. And I'm telling you guys, these are some pretty impertinent questions. These are not the kind of questions that when you guys were, you know, like asking youth group, your, your youth pastor doesn't want you to ask questions like this. <laughs> Will God reject me forever? I'm just kidding, Rick. <laughs> Will God reject me forever? Will he never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Have his promises come to an end? Has he forgotten to be gracious? Has he shut up his compassion? Have you ever asked questions like that? I mean, we all end up in quandaries like this where another where, you know, we hear that God is gracious. We're taught that, you know, God is loving and that God is powerful and that he yearns to come to our aid. And yet you find yourself in a situation in which God does not seem to be responsive to your prayers. You know, you pray and pray for a marriage to be restored and it falls apart. You pray and pray for a child, a wayward child to return to God, to return to you. And they just drift further away. You pray for someone to be healed, healed of cancer, healed of some debilitating illness, and instead they just worsen and eventually die. 
And it makes you wonder. God says he is a loving and responsive God, so why is he silent? It's like you're in the hospital, and you're on the bed, and you're pushing the nurse button over and over and over again, and nobody's coming. Where is she? Is she in the bathroom? Is she sleeping? Is she with other patients? You know, God, you, you, you say that you can do something, so why are you doing nothing? Have you asked questions like that? What do you do with that experience? The reason I said what I said about the, the, the youth counselor thing is because I was a counselor once. I was a camp counselor of youth when I was in college. And I remember I had a camper who was always questioning and always asking really hard questions. He had gone through some trauma in his life with his family, and he would interrupt Bible studies. Um, he would begin to ask like really heavy questions about God that were really difficult. And frankly, I was uncomfortable with his questions. And so I encouraged him to stop asking his questions and to just have faith. Friends, I deeply regret my counsel now, and I worry about where that young man is. I, I wish so much that I would have known about the Psalms of Lament. I wish I would have, could point him to places like Psalm 77, where the Bible actually seems to give us permission to speak and ask frustrated and questions of doubt to God. It, I wish I had known that it is not the Christian way to just smile and trust God and say everything will work out and just suppress your feelings and don't talk about how bad you really feel because good Christians don't ask hard questions. No, friends. Look at these psalms here and in many other, we see people talking openly about their frustration, protesting, asking baffled questions, shaking their fist at him. What are you doing? Where are you? Why are you doing nothing? You said you would come to my aid. Were you lying? You said you loved me. Have you forgotten to be gracious? The very presence of these prayers in the scripture speak to me of God's compassion, that God knows how humans pray when humans are desperate, and that he not only codifies these prayers in the very holy word of God, but that he encourages us to come to him, not as we should be, not in our, with our nicely manicured, pretty, nicely looking prayers, but to come with all the desperation of our hearts. He welcomes us as we are. He is a safe God, who wants to, us to come to him to begin where we are. Something else, though, I want you to see here about Asaph and his question. It is directed directly to his God. He has serious questions, but he does not take these questions to his friends. He isn't blogging about them. He doesn't start, you know, questioning God in Israel society. I'm, I'm all for talking to, to, to others and therapists about your pain, but ultimately I want you to see that he comes to God. He shakes his fist. He asks his doubts, but he comes directly to God with his questions. It's like in any, any, any person that is very, very close in your life, you will speak most honestly to that person about your pain. And that's the sense you get in the Psalms is that these people, because they have a close relationship with God, feel at liberty to pour out to him their deepest protests and their greatest pain. And it's actually that honesty which deepens the relationship with him. So it's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts fears and struggles. But friends, please listen. Don't let your questions drive you from God. As I know for some of you it has. Let your questions drive you to him. Let them enrich your prayer life and deepen your life with God. The people who have the closest relationship with God and the richest prayer lives that I have known are those who have forged their prayer in suffering and who have been willing to speak honestly to God about their pain. One last thing to say here. What if this is not how you're feeling? 
right? Like, what if you're feeling great? Right? Like, what, what if you're reading the Psalms, as I hope you do, um, and you come to a Psalm like this, and you're actually having a fantastic day? What a downer, right? I mean, who wants to read a Psalm like this when you're feeling awesome? Well, here's what I'd say about that. This is Asaph's prayer, but it became a prayer for the whole church. It became a way for us to lament and grieve for those around us who are grieving, even if you yourself might not be experiencing sorrow. To be a Christian is actually to become a person, and I hate to tell you this, but to be a person who laments more than the typical person. Because when the love of Jesus comes into your heart, your heart begins to soften. Your heart becomes vulnerable. You begin to feel pain that you did not previously feel. Grieve over things you did not previously grieve. Where you used to might say, uh, oh, that, that's just his problem, not my problem. Suddenly it becomes your problem. The problem and the burdens and the sorrows of your brother and sister you begin to take on as your own. As you become more like Jesus, you will become a person who laments. Why else do you think they called him the man of sorrows? Because he was perfect. And the more unselfish you become, the more like Christ you become, the more in touch you will become with the pain and the sorrow of those around you. So yeah, uh, if you don't have any suffering in your own life, good news, no shortage of suffering in the community. (laughs) Uh, There is much of it even here today. And the Psalms give us language to pray this on behalf of others. The fact that these laments are included in the songbook of the church are an invitation for the church to be a place where grief and sorrow and those who are in pain can find solace. Are we a church like that, friends? Can we be a church like that where people can be publicly open about their pain and their suffering? I have people, I know people who have told me that the church, not necessarily our church, but the church in general, can be one of the worst places to suffer in. Why? Because we buy into the myth that to be a Christian is to be happy. You know, I'm too blessed to be stressed, right? Um, To be a Christian is to just go from one victory to the next, one triumph to the next. Friends, this psalm exposed that nonsense. We see from the Psalms of Lament that anguish and confusion are not a sign of deficient faith. They are actually intrinsic to the nature of real faith. A whole third of the book of Psalms is anguish. The church is a community of the broken, and we must be a place where it is a safe environment for broken people to express their pain. We must be fluent in the language of lament. That's the first thing the Psalms offer us. But the second thing that they offer us is faith, to believe a bigger story. In 2005, there was a very strange auction on eBay. It was a fundraiser. And the highest bidder had the chance to be written into a Stephen King novel as a character and be murdered in the novel. It was like the promise of literary immortality, right? To be forever in. And the, and the, and the winning bidder paid 25000 for the chance to be written in the Stephen King novel. And he was killed, and he loved it. Um, this kicked off a trend. John Grisham offered the same similar fundraiser, which went for 12000 Another bidder paid six grand to be an utterance in a Lemony Snicket uh, book. 7-Eleven even caught on and conducted a nationwide contest in which the winner could be written into an episode of The Simpsons. You know, how's that for immortality? Just you and Homer forever in the, in the archives of The Simpsons. What is this all about? Well, not to get too deep about this, but there does seem to be a longing in all of us to have our lives written into a story that is bigger and better than our own. Especially if you're living a life of tragedy and a life with a lot of pain. You want to know if there's a plot, right? You want to know if there is a coherent narrative to this confusing path that you're on. We need to know that there's a bigger story. 
And up to verse 9, we see Asaph is stuck in his feelings of meaninglessness and sorrow. He can't see any plot or any purpose. But look, at, look with me again at the psalm. Look at verse 10 and 11. There's a shift. Do you see that? And it begins with this great word, remember. Remember, he says. I remember. I ponder. I meditate. I consider. He begins to reflect on the larger story of God and his salvation. Specifically, he's remembering the story of the Exodus which for the people of Israel was the story of God's salvation, how God rescued the people out of slavery and death, Egypt and the Red Sea, and brought them to freedom. And Asaph begins to meditate and reflect on this story, and though it does not change his current circumstances, it begins to change his soul. It begins to remind him that though God is hidden, God is surely not absent. Though God appears to be silent, God is indeed faithful. That God has acted in history mightily to battle against the forces of chaos and evil. And he will do so again, even in Asaph's life today. That though God has rescued his people from impossible situations, he will again rescue Asaph even now. And so what you see here is a man, listen to this, you see a man arguing in prayer with his own heart. You see that? He's arguing in prayer with his own heart. Verse 10, look what he says. He says, to this I will appeal. Lawyers appeal a case when they hope for a different outcome from the lower courts, right? And it's almost like Asaph has been handed a verdict from the lower court of his feelings that have given him the conclusion that God is absent and that God is is out to lunch and that God is unfaithful. And so now Asaph is appealing the, the case and he is building his new case on the evidence of God's faithfulness in history. And he is speaking to his own heart. He says, if God had power to deliver his people from evil, can he not deliver me now from my current trouble, O heart? If God has rescued his people from death, why am I so afraid in this current moment, O heart? If God has saved us from an impossible situation, will he not save me now? See, prayer is a wrestling match where Asaph fights for his faith to believe the bigger story And so though his circumstances have not changed, he gets up off his knees and he is now filled with hope to live another day. For those of us who are New Testament Christians, this is an even more powerful dynamic because we have a bigger, more amazing story. Our exodus, for for Christians, our exodus is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the mighty work of God and his salvation. And our deliverance is not just a social and political deliverance. It is deliverance from sin and hell and the devil and death itself. And at the moment where we were doomed to destruction, God intervened and rescued us. God, listen to friends. Is it not an amazing thing that God himself became a man of sorrow? That Jesus himself in the flesh cried tears of desperation. He took the psalms of lament on as his own. He cried a psalm of lament from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did all of this. He substituted himself. He became an abandoned human being to guarantee that any feeling that you have of God's abandonment is just that, just a feeling. The only person who has actually literally been abandoned by God is Jesus Christ so that you could never be. He has guaranteed the love and the grace and the rescue and the hope of God through his death and his resurrection for you. And that is the true story of your life. That is, that is the great story that your little life is in, that God will take all of your crucifixions and turn them into a resurrection of hope. That is the promise of God through Jesus. So when we pray, we fight. We fight to believe a bigger story. 
We pour out our feelings honestly. We have permission to express our desperation. But then we fight for the truth. We remember, as Paul says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also graciously give us all things? Let me just offer an example of how this might work as I close here. You know, this is a, been a, this is a crowdsourced sermon series. So all of the sermons that we're preaching on have been recommended by somebody in the congregation. All the psalms that we're preaching on have been recommended by someone in the congregation. And so the woman who suggested Psalm 77 gave me permission to use her story, though I will not use her name. I'll just call her Jane. And when Jane's kids were teenagers, she began to have a lot of trouble, especially with her daughter. Um, her daughter dropped out of college, moved in with a guy who was trouble. Her daughter began to make bad decision after bad decision, and this was agonizing for Jane. Agonizing. She said, what is happening? I raised her in this church. And, and the more she prayed, the more her daughter seemed to, to, to make bad decision after bad decision. And she was, Jane was so distraught, so upset. Uh, she began to be riddled with anxiety. She wasn't able to sleep at night. And one day when asking a friend for prayer, the friend suggested using Psalm 77 for prayer. And so Jane was gripped by it. She immediately realized that here was a prayer in the Bible expressing the very thing she had wanted to say but felt like she couldn't. Expressing her angst, expressing her, her own bewilderment with God. And she began to feel like God actually understood what she was going through because her very emotions were here written in the psalm before her. And then in the midst of her sorrow, the psalm invited her to remember the bigger story of God's faithfulness. She began to remember the ways that God had been faithful to her family in the past. She remembered when God gave her children after a really terrible miscarriage. She remembered singing lullabies to her little girl in the night and having a strong sense of God's presence. She remembered when her daughter went to Camp Willow Run um, and trusted in the gospel. And she had a great sense of God's care for her child. And above all, she remembered God's love for her in Jesus and that God promised to never abandon her and leave her alone. Psalm 77 gave her language for lament, but more importantly, it gave her language of hope. It pointed her to hope and it helped her to live another day in her anguish, yet pointed towards hope. And she has turned to that psalm again and again over the last couple of days. So friends, many of the psalms do this for us. In the bewildering experiences of the present, we are reminded of the past we might have hope for the future. That though the current chapter of your life may feel inexplicable, we humble ourselves to believe that God is writing a bigger story and it is indeed a story of hope. So I told you when we started this series that we would seek to not just talk about the Psalms, but to actually do the Psalms together. And so we're going to do that now. You can see these, um, these clay pots on the table before you. And I want you to just imagine or see this pot as a symbol of your own fragile life. The fragility of your life that is, is easily broken and upended by any kind of suffering or circumstance that can come along. And in a moment, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shatter some of these pots. And if you feel desirous to do so, as we begin to sing, you can come forward and, and take a piece of the pot as a, as a symbol of some shattered place in your own life. Some, some place that is broken and has not been resolved. This could be something broken in your body, whether it be an illness or a chronic pain or disease it could, or a miscarriage. It could be something broken in, in a relationship. 
in your marriage or a friendship. It could be something broken in your soul, a depression or fear. It could be a broken dream, whatever it might be. There's something, we carry these things that are, that are broken in us, that are unresolved, where God does not seem to be responding. And what God is inviting you to do is come forward and pick this up and just speak honestly to him just for a moment. You could pick it up, speak honestly to him, And then what I would invite you to do is just to place it on the table and look up to the cross and remember the bigger story. Remember that God takes the broken places of your life and redeems them, resurrects them, just as he has done in Jesus Christ. Now you are in Jesus Christ, he promises to do for you. So let me pray. Father, as we uh, come forward, we pray that we would know that you are a God who invites us to bring the broken places of our life to you and to not pretend that they're not there, not to stuff our pain, but to actually just speak honestly to you, to express our protests and our bewilderment and our doubts, but then ultimately to lay that peace down before you, looking to the cross, looking to Jesus, the one who has redeemed everything that is broken and promises to one day wipe away all tears. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.